turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. Luke, chapter 22. We'll begin reading in verse 1. Actually, I'm going to back up and read chapter 21, verse 37. And we're going to read um, chapter 22 through verse 23. Being Luke, chapter 21, verse 37. I'll be reading out the New King James Version, as is my custom. God's Word says, And in the daytime he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and stayed on the mount called Olivet. Then early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. So they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room there. This morning, we will begin a study of the passion of Christ, is how it's usually presented. That is, the events surrounding uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. Um, it begins really already with his triumphal entry that uh, has really already occurred, um, but we didn't focus on that because Luke doesn't. He has done a lot of the teaching of Christ. We have just gotten done with a series where Christ entered his prophet, or nearly completed his prophetic ministry, not quite, but very nearly, uh, in terms of sharing what will be uh, in the short term for that generation that saw his death and the events to follow, as well as our generation and, inter- and as well as generations in between. When we come into this, we are confronted with some information. And um, this information has caused a lot of turmoil in the Christian community. There's a lot of different ideas of when and and over the specifics. And we are going to take some time this morning to deal with some of those details. Uh, I don't like dealing with those, but they are necessary. And I think it's important that we realize that they are manageable. And so if someone comes to you and says, oh, the Bible contradicts itself because here it says one thing and there it says something different, um, we want to make sure we understand things. Uh, First of all, the first thing we need to grasp is that our authors come from very different backgrounds and have very different audiences. And once we begin to recognize that Matthew was different than Mark and different than Luke and different than John, and had a different audience, as did Mark. If you recall, two of the authors of the Gospels, Matthew and John, were eyewitnesses. They were disciples themselves, apostles. Two were not. Two were historians. And so Mark uh, was not an apostle. And so we often talk about him representing Peter's version of things. And then, of course, Luke, the historian, uh, that uh, perhaps was... Um, with a very Roman view of everything. And so we have this uh, great time frame, too, between them. Uh, John, of course, written much later than the others, and John, Luke and John both, and Matthew Mark being the earlier. So that's going to account for some of the differences that we have to talk about a little bit today and address. Uh, particularly when you think about, are we going to view and talk about these things from a Roman perspective, 
and from their time schedule and from their idea of what these things are, um, from a Hellenistic view, which would be the Greek or Gentile converse to Judaism, or um, from a strictly Hebrew point of view, because that does change. And in fact, it's even struggles for me um, dealing with it, because uh, even in the Hebrew mindset, you had a transition occur somewhere way back there around Babylon time during the captivity, uh, and from uh, of changing of the names of the month, of Hebrew months, of the uh, change also of the reckoning of a day uh, from solar to lunar, and uh, in which we now carry with us the idea of, of a lunar day, and the lunar month, I should say. And then the whole idea of does the, when does the day start? Does the day start when our day starts at midnight, which is very Roman? Or does it start at twilight, which is the Hebrew mind, that the day starts when the sun goes down? And so that begins, which is practiced even to this day, the Sabbath begins Friday at sunset. This is not all day Saturday. It is only till Saturday sunset. And so we have to have a background knowledge of some of this information, but there's a lot more than that, that we really need to be able to understand some of this information, some of what's going on here. Perhaps one of the greatest things lacking in our churches today is a real knowledge of the Jewish uh, celebrations, the feast days and the fast days. We really are, frankly, pretty ignorant of them. And that's tragic because they are so full of truth. They are so... Uh, picturesque of who Jesus is and of, and of what God intended to accomplish through him. And it is tragic that we are not well connected to that information. And so today I'm going to have to, since our text starts off by sharing that it was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we have to deal with that. And so I'm not going to assume that you know what any of this is. And so let's press on into it. Before we do so, let's go Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us, and we thank you for this opportunity to uh, inform ourselves on your word and its truth, um, to seek to clarify that and to bring it into harmony uh, with itself, and then to surrender our belief system to that truth. And Lord, also in the midst of all of that, we also want to... um, Heed your warnings in this passage, as well as enjoy the significant truth that you presented here. We need your help in doing all this. No man is capable of this. So we pray for your spirit to control this time to your glory. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Now, Feast of Unleavened Bread uh, is to commemorate the time period uh, following the exit, or following the uh, Passover, uh, as you recall, the Passover is the event. There's there's really two Passovers. There's the first Passover, which is unique. Um, no other Passover since has uh, death fallen upon the enemies of the firstborn of Israel. Okay, and uh, no other Passover was it instructed for them to paint the doorposts and lintels of their of their uh, dwelling place, and so. All the rest of the Passovers were commemorative of the first Passover, which was unique. And this is going to be very important next week when we get to talking about the communion table, that it is commemorative of a unique singular event and is not trying to repeat the event, but rather to commemorate the event. And so we have the Passover that the Jews and not just the Jews, but all Israel, Jews really only refer to the tribe of Judah, that that the the Passover that Israel would have celebrated and continue to celebrate is to commemorate that night of the last plague of God on on Egypt, almost at Israel. And so here they were to protect themselves from this uh, agent of death that came through Egypt they were to sacrifice this lamb. They were supposed to stay indoors, painted the, the, the uh, blood on the doorpost and lintel of, their, of each door. And they were to stay inside and they were supposed to eat this in haste. They were supposed to have bitter herbs. 
They also have unleavened bread. And so we have Passover. And Christ is going to partake of Passover today in our text. Uh, And that's very clearly stated by Luke, by Mark, and by Matthew. The problem a little bit that we're going to deal with this morning is John. Um, That he's going to eat the Passover. Now, that was a singular event. And it has certain rules around it that day called Passover. But its focus was this evening meal. And that uh, presented some special rules for Israel. And that is that, that while Passover itself was considered a kind of Sabbath where it was a dedicated day to uh, be set aside, no normal work was to be done, some work was allowed to be done, particularly in the preparations of the Sabbath. Um, but most of it was to be done the day before in terms of getting rid of uh, leaven out of the house. But that was even allowed even till 10 o'clock in the morning of the day. And so certainly by the time the meal comes, there should have been at least, uh, I think, uh, six or eight hours of no leaven anywhere in the house. This is Passover. It'll be about March, April for us. And we're familiar with that because our Easter kind of is associated with it. Um, why? Because it should be, because this was the context of Christ's sacrifice. The very next day was another high day in Israel. The very next day after Passover, and Passover there would be probably be a full moon at this time. Um, remember that uh, there was a lunar calendar, so the first of every month was a new moon. And there were some issues about figuring out when new moons were, um, because sometimes it was 29 days and sometimes it was 30. And, and so there was a very formalized system to figure out a new moon and to tell everybody because that starts the month, which starts the, the time, the clock for when Passover is. Um, because if you can't figure out the first of the month, you can't figure out the 14th of the month. So the new moon starts the month. New moon is when it's gone. So therefore, by the middle of the month, the 14th, it would be a full moon. And so if you want to start thinking about what it was like in the garden when Jesus was arrested, it was a full moon. Whether it was cloudy or not, we don't know, but it was very reasonable to assume they they had good uh, light, if you will. This first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a holy convocation to the Lord, the Bible says. That is, it is set apart like a Sabbath as well. And so it was to be uh, a special day, and yet during it also you can make preparations for a very important sacrifice and feast that evening. And there's a, oh, I can't think of the word for it. It's a sagig, it's a sagig, I can't, I don't know how to pronounce it anyway. Anyway, there, Israel has a very specific term for that feast. And so there would be a sacrifice of a burnt offering, that evening of the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, there would be another meal that would be partaken of. Uh, and so there was a lot of important things happening at the end of that day uh, that you could be disqualified from if you were Levitically impure, impure by contacting with Gentiles or dead things and things along that line. So you have these two very important days. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread goes on for seven days. It's a week. And the last day of the, of the Feast of Unleavened Bread is also a holy convocation of the Lord. That is, it is a kind of Sabbath as well. And so what we have here are three special Sabbaths. In the midst of them, there is going to be at least one regular Sabbath, isn't there? Has to be. Okay, which is the seventh day, a Saturday. So somewhere between Passover and the end of the Feast of Tabernacle, a Feast of Unleavened Bread, there is going to be another Sabbath. So now we have a minimum of three Sabbaths, maybe as many as five Sabbaths during this time. In other words, if Passover was a, sa- a Saturday, you'd have another Saturday. Well, it, no, that would be combined, wouldn't it? So you'd have four. Sorry, there couldn't be five. So you'd have four Sabbath days maximum. Three minimum. Three if Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread fell on a Saturday. And these days are like other Sabbaths. 
with the exception of preparation for the meals and for the sacrifices that were allowed, including, among them, important to our study today, carrying water. You are allowed to carry water on these special holy Sabbaths in preparation for the sacrifice and the meals that were to be had that evening at twilight. And twilight in the Jewish mind is when the first three stars are visible. Then, as soon as you see three stars visible, and of course they counted Venus as one of those, um, then that meant the Sabbath had begun. So, we come to this, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near. And you'll notice right away in verse 22, which is called Passover. Now, Passover, the term Passover, sometimes refers only to the one day of the Passover meal. But it was often used to refer to the whole of the Unleavened Bread Feast, which is what Luke communicates here. That these two terms, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover, were almost always interchangeable by Jesus' day. And that's going to be very important to us. Because when we get to John, and John says that Jesus was killed on the Passover because the people didn't want to go into uh, Pilate's the, the hallway because they didn't want to become defiled so they could eat the Passover that night. He was not referring to the Paschal meal, but probably the first meal of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which then solves it all. Do we have a problem calling it a Passover? No, Luke is perhaps the key because he tells us the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the word Passover can be interchanged. We want to regiment it and say, when you talk about Passover, you're only talking about this day, the 14th day, Nisan. But Luke makes it very clear that in most people's minds, you can interchange these terms because to them it was all one event. And so they often would use the word Passover throughout the entirety of the week, particularly the first day, this holy convocation of the Lord of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So, Passover to represent or to celebrate, to commemorate the deliverance from the agent of death that went through Egypt. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was to commemorate the Exodus itself, that first week of travel, if you will, that brings us into the Red Sea and the crossing of the Red Sea and things along that line. So we have that commemorated, that remember, unleavened bread was the bread of haste because you're going to be pushed out first thing in the morning. You're not going to have time to wait for bread to rise. You're going to be pressed out and you're going to have to eat this kind of bread for a week on the road. You're not ever going to be able to stop and rest till you get to the other side of the Red Sea, the Gulf of Aqaba. You're not going to be able to get on the other side, rest till you get away from Egypt. So you're going to have unleavened bread for a week, and they are commemorating the Exodus. Passover is not commemorating the Exodus. Passover is commemorating the deliverance from the agent of death. The Exodus, the, the, the workings of Passover night, is commemorated in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, a few weeks later, there's going to be a Feast of Weeks, and that is going to commemorate the arrival at Mount Sinai and the giving of the law. And we call that day Pentecost. Pentecost is in that day of the Feast of Weeks, several weeks since Passover or since the Exodus, since the Unleavened Bread. And so once we have this understanding of the feasts, what they commemorate, as well as how they were practiced and how, what they were called, we can now come to our text, hopefully, and resolve some of these issues. Did Christ institute the Lord's Supper on the Passover? Yes, it can't be more clear. Did the leaders of Israel need to stay ceremonially clean to eat the Passover? Yes the next night, because it was another very important sacrifice and very important meal that was often called Passover. 
Okay? And so don't let the terminology mess with you too much. And so we have this statement. Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near. It is called Passover by many people. We have that information. Very important information. Thank you, Dr. Luke. We're going to resolve a lot of issues with that. We go on. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Now, if you remember, when Jesus comes in, there was a great uproar. The people have been meeting first thing in the morning every day. Can't wait till Jesus arrives into town. And they're there listening to him teach. That's what was given us at the end of chapter 21. It says, early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Uh, his teaching, his prophetic teaching, his utterances were just, people just swarmed him for them. Don't think this is just a crowd of Jerusalemites. Jerusalem is swelled. Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread was one of three times that every male in Israel had to appear before the Lord wherever he lived. And at this point, it was the temple. Every male. Now, if you were farther than, I think, 15 miles away, there were some allowances and if things like that. So there were some rules if you couldn't make it there. But, but the desire and the command of God was that every male present themselves at the temple three times a year, and this is one of them. So Jerusalem is full. And they're gathering and they're hearing it. So when you hear the priests and the scribes talking about, we would love to get rid of this guy, but we're afraid because Jerusalem is full right now and the multitudes just encompass him from very early in the morning until he leaves at night. And so they had determined that we find from the other to wait till after the feast. We'll just wait and once all these people dissipate here in a couple of weeks, then we'll take him out. Then we'll crucify him. Then we'll have him killed. But you see, and that was the desire of the religious leaders, was that we'll take care of all of this once these pilgrims start leaving Jerusalem. In fact, they might have even been thinking to wait till after Pentecost, because many stuck around till Pentecost. But you see, that wouldn't work into God's plan. Because both Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread have very powerful salvific images that Christ is going to fulfill. And when we come to Jesus implementing his, the Lord's Supper, he actually talks about this is the last Passover because I'm going to fulfill it. I'm going to fill it up. It's going to be completed. It's going to be finished. And now... You're no longer going to be com just commemorate. We're, we're going to supplant the commemoration of the deliverance of Israel from her enemies and from death. We're going to now supplant it with this commemoration of deliverance of all men from death. And we are supplanting the Passover. Not that we can't and we've had satyrs here to, to commemorate and remember the deliverance of God, of Israel by God out of Egypt. That, that's precious and, 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 and important. And shame on us for not understanding and not un knowing how it's celebrated. Just as important as it is that we remember and, and commemorate that um, the Lord created everything that exists in six days and rested on the seventh but it was supplanted by something greater. And that was the resurrection. The resurrection was a greater act than creation itself. And the song of heaven proves it. And so we have supplanted the, the Israelite Sabbath with a commemoration of a greater event than creation, and that is the recreation of all men through the blood of Jesus Christ, through his, the power of his resurrection to conquer sin and death. That's why we celebrate Sunday instead of Saturday. Because something greater than creation has happened in our history. And that was Christ's resurrection. And so we commemorate the Lord's Supper and not Passover because something greater than the deliverance of Israel from Egypt has occurred and as deliverance of all men by the blood of Jesus Christ.
from sin and death, our enemy and death, we've been delivered from. Just as Israel in that day was delivered from Egypt and from the agent of death. And so now the priests were holding back and wanting to wait, but God says, no, this is the time. And this is where something phenomenal happens that makes us really kind of scratch our head and bring up a lot of theological issues, um, but they're important. First of all, since the leadership of Israel had decided to wait, but waiting didn't fit the plan of God, something had to be moved. And Luke tells us that at this time, when the chief priests have decided we're going to wait till after the feast and then we'll get him, Judas comes to them. And Luke tells us he was filled or that Satan entered him. And this is incredible. And it makes it one of the, a great struggle of understanding. It really takes you back in the book of Job and other passages of Scripture. But it, the, the great struggle that is going on spiritually in the background here, uh, where Satan is struggling, 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 and yet in his struggling, he ends up glorifying God even while he's trying to thwart God. Satan enters Judas. And this shouldn't be confused with somehow he became a zombie and, and was forced to do these things against his will. That is not implied here. And in fact, the other gospel writers don't even mention Satan's role here. Um, but rather that uh, Satan saw opportunity in the heart and in the mindset of Judas Iscariot and lay hold of that and moved there much as he moved in tempting Jesus Christ. He's going to tempt Judas. In fact, uh, I would even contend that it might have been the exact same temptation, which let's force the issue and let's uh, force you to show your power. Just as Satan went to Jesus and said, Let, let's just see if we can force you to show your power. Let, let's just force the issue and show everybody that the angels take care of you. Throw yourself down. Force it, show your power and, and turn these stones to bread. Force your power. And I'll grant you everything. And you just wonder if that was the same temptation given to Judas. Force the issue, and Jesus' kingdom will come. And we'll help him. We'll help him by betrayal. Now, that is probably the most positive way to look at what Judas did. That he succumbed to the temptation that Jesus did not. Let's bring the kingdom to bear by forcing a confrontation between the leadership that is and the Romans and the power of Jesus. Let's force it. So here, Satan and, and Judas become allies and they go and prompt a moving up of the schedule. Now we look at this and we say, well, this is perfect. Certainly God had a hand in this. And yet we know that Judas was responsible for his actions and is under curse for them. We know that Satan is responsible for his influence and his actions, and he will suffer judgment for them. And this is a wonderful teaching that God can and does work not through, at least by, others' evil. Does not condone it, does not cause it, and yet he can employ them. And I might, we might struggle with that, but uh, perhaps a good example would be to go back into Babylon and to Assyria, particularly Babylon. Um, Babylon is an example of, of a people that were impacted directly by the events around Hezekiah and the moving of the sun. They come and they want to worship the God of Hezekiah. Hezekiah shows them all the wealth and it was a big mistake for him. They go back and it has some kind of influence there. There's some effect there. And the resulting is that God is going to let Babylon come to power, raises them up in power, and then they're allowed to do what we would consider an evil thing, and that is to come in and sack Jerusalem. 
multiple times. We might look at that and say, oh, that's an evil thing. But yeah, God says, no, this is my agent of judgment on you because you've done evil. But then Babylon got into trouble. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't glorifying God for what God allowed happen. And then he became an animal for a few years. He finally came to his senses and, and glorified God and actually converted to be a worshiper and a servant of the God of Israel. Um, but Babylon itself, within one generation, would then fall because they refused to honor God. And the same thing with Assyria. Nineveh was reached through Jonah. They repented. God honored them. They came to power. They were used to destroy the northern tribes of Israel. They didn't honor God in that, and God destroyed them. So, does God work in those ways? Yes. Is he the force that causes them? No. We cannot confuse the, the, the capacity of God to know, foreknow, and to engage them with causation. But he does work all things together for the good. And he's been doing that for a long time. Once we understand that God can work in the midst of evil to accomplish something good and right, we do not glorify the evil, do we? We rejoice that God can use it. And so when we encounter evil in this world, this is a great testimony for us. We do not despair. The disciples, when they were called in and beaten, did not despair. Was what that happened to them right and good? No, it was evil and wrong. But they left there rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for His namesake. Because God can use that in us. And James describes, the book of James describes how God can use that trials that come into our life to purify and to perfect us. And so I don't rejoice that evil is around me, but nor do I despair over it. I simply confront it for what it is, the evil of men that they're going to have to answer to God for. And then I look to God and says, well, you're doing something in my life. Because God is not a part. He's at hand. And He is engaged in doing and working these things to our good and yet not causing that to occur. And so we come now. Satan is involved. Judas is involved. They are going to force the issue. The chief priests and the captains, and Luke is the only one that tells us that these were involved, um, were glad, it says, and agreed to give him money. We'll pay you for this. And of course, fulfillment of prophecy of 30 pieces of silver. Move up the time frame. We can get rid of this guy because Judas has insider information. Judas can do something for them that they couldn't do. He can tell them when Jesus is alone. He can tell them when there is no multitude around. Judas's betrayal is essentially built upon the fact that he knew the pattern of Jesus' day. And he knew when there was alone time with just him or just him and his disciples. He knew what was going on, where he would be and would be willing to contact it. What was important when we come into where they were going to eat the Passover was that this knowledge was kept from Judas. Let's keep reading. Verse 6, let's read verse 6. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. So Judas's instruction from the high priest and from the, the leadership was, when you find him without the multitude and you know that he's going to be there you send word to us when you know that there's not going to be a multitude around him let us know and that's when we'll take him well there would be no better time to do that than during the paschal meal why because in all of israel during the passover and you don't know this you were to be grouped together with your neighbors in groups of minimum of 10 people eating the meal together and a maximum of 20 people eating that meal together. That was the law. 
So a minimum of 10 to eat the Passover and a maximum of 20. Which meant that if Jesus was eating a Paschal meal, the fewest that would be there would be 10, but the most that would be there would be 20. This would be a great time to take him. And we come and we find out that none of the disciples knows where they're going to eat the meal. Isn't that great? Judas could not have betrayed him for the Paschal meal itself because he didn't know where they were going to eat it. None of the disciples did. In fact, they come to Jesus and say, the Passover must be killed. It's time. It's, it's, it's the first day and, and, and the, it must be killed. And so Peter and Jesus sends Peter and John, and Luke is the only one that tells us that, uh, saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. He says, where do you want us to prepare? They're sent on a mission to get ready this Paschal meal and they don't even know where to go. Nobody knew because Jesus was not to be portrayed during that time but rather later that night in the garden. And so they go and they're going to be told how to find that person and you're going to, someone's going to meet you and it's going to be a man carrying a jar of water. You go, come on, how many guys could be carrying jars of water in Jerusalem? I mean, they're getting ready for the Paschal meal. Let me share with you, no one, not one man should be carrying a jar of water in Jerusalem. Why? First of all, men didn't carry jars. Women carried jars. If a man went to get water, he would take a skin, a, a skin for it. Men carried skins of water. Only women carried jars. Jesus says, you go in and find some guy doing a woman's work, a woman's way. It would be like me sending you to the mall and go find a guy with a pink apron on. Cooking. Okay? Do you have a pink apron? I'm looking at some of the guys. I don't want to offend any of you. Okay. You go find a man doing a woman's job the woman's way, looking like a woman. But yet it's a man. So a man's going to meet you. And you're just going to follow him. And uh, follow him to the house that he enters. (laughs) And when you get there, you say to the master of that house, The Lord needs this place, and he's going to have a place prepared. Now, in Jerusalem during the swelled time, it was very common. In fact, it was offered for free to have pilgrims eat Paschal meal with you at your house. Because remember, you need a minimum of 10, maximum of 20. And so this was freely offered. And usually what happened was they would bring the lamb and you'd provide the place. And uh, at the end of the meal, uh, they would give you the skin of the Passover lamb as kind of a gift thanking you for letting, them use their, letting you use their place. So this is not something way out there in the blue, but so it was common for every homeowner there to have a room set up for a Paschal meal. Every upper room would have been set up for a Paschal meal in all Jerusalem that day. What's unusual is that it was... empty. It wasn't already chosen for someone. And here he walks in and the meal is ready and and the guest room is, is all set. And uh, it, it's just the way Jesus says as they enter it and we are now ready to engage in the Paschal meal. The Passover meal. The, the, the lambs are killed that day at a certain time. They are then taken in and uh, consumed. And of course, according to the law, they were to have none of it left. Um, And we have a very precious event. We need to recognize that it is not necessary that Jesus died on Passover. But rather, that next day of the completion of the work that was begun with that Paschal meal. The Paschal meal, they were all still slaves. But by the first meal of unleavened bread, they were all free. And it is on that day that Christ died. And it was that high Sabbath that he needed to be buried before. It was that day that the leaders were concerned about making themselves unclean and not being able to participate in the sacrifice that sundown. 
And so Christ comes to institute his supper at just the right time in safety. A time when everyone was at a home having the same meal. Realizing that even while he's participating in it, there was a man at the table who was already engaged to betray Christ. The authors of the Gospels and of the book of Acts, same authors, Luke, tell us very little about Judas. He has not been isolated very much other than the fact that he was the keeper of the money. He has not been set aside. When they were sent out two by two and performed great miracles and signs and demons listened to him, Judas wasn't excluded from that list. In fact, from every indication all the way through there, there was no difference between Judas and the other 11. It was so significant that even the disciples themselves couldn't believe that a betrayer was among them. And at verse 23, it says they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. In Others we have that they even ask the question, is it me? Is it me? We are sure that we, that, that Judas had shifty eyes, that he was, that he uh, uh, had slumped over shoulders, or there was something way that we could identify him. But the fact is, none could identify him but Jesus. He moved and talked and walked and behaved in the circles um, perfectly the same as the others. But in his heart, he wanted something. He wanted it so bad that he was willing to help God obtain it. Whether that was his motive or there was another motive, we don't know. We don't know his heart. And the Bible nowhere seeks to declare it. It seeks nowhere to explain what he did. Just he did it. And so any putting on him of motive is speculation, and and, uh, I don't want to run there too far. But we know the disciples on several occasions wanted to implement the kingdom. They wanted Jesus to become king. They wanted it to happen. And on on at least two occasions, Jesus Christ had to intervene personally, and the problem makers were the disciples. He had to put the disciples on the boat because the people wanted to make him king and you know who the instigators were. The guys he had to put on the boat to send them out. And so, if that was a motive that we'd seen in the past and we could anticipate it here, we find Judas wanting to force the issue and what he ends up doing is not forcing what he wants. Strangely enough, but he has forced what God wants. But woe to him. And this is what Jesus says. You know what? It's going to happen to me according to things that have been established thousands of years ago. It's going to happen. Verse 22 is very important. We're going to come back to the Lord's Supper next week. But I want to look at verse 22. Truly, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. God had established this season of sacrifice. It's not just a day, but it's a whole season of sacrifice and of, and of, and of putting the attention on deliverance and, and the shedding of blood and the, and the deliverance from the enemy of Israel and the enemy of the people being sin and deliverance from death. It has been determined that this is when the Messiah would sacrifice of himself to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That has been determined. The mechanism of it, though, lays on the head of Judas. 
he says, yes, this has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. In the cogs of how all of this is going to come to fruition in God's perfect timetable, there is a black one in there, and his name is Judas, as well as the chief priests and scribes, as well as Herod and Pilate, and all those kinds of entities that are going to be involved in this within the next 24 hours. But we find that here is Judas's part, and it says, listen, you've done ev- you're doing evil. What you're doing is fundamentally one of the most evil things there is to do. You are the betrayer of the Son of God. And in the doing of your evil, though, God has placed His hand over it, not to condone it, but to cause, but to enable your evil without cause to move others' evil to come into conformity with God's time. What the chief priests wanted to do was evil. They wanted to kill the Messiah. What Judas wanted to do was evil. He wanted to, he wanted to betray the Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one whom he called God. Both of those agents were evil and would have that woe put upon them for that. But Judas necessitates Judas's effect upon the chief priests was necessary to bring the time frame up to God's time. And we have here a window into a world that frankly is a little scary to walk into and extremely difficult to understand and even harder to communicate. Rather than getting into it too far, I want us to understand what is not hard. What is sought to be communicated here, which is not hard and should be focused on, is this. You can trust God to do what He says He'll do. We can sit here and wrangle about terminology and about certain aspects, very fine points of theology, but fundamentally what this kind of activity boils us down to is realizing that in the workings of God, He is one to be trusted. That His promises will be kept, period. And no force of evil, not Satan himself, can thwart them And in fact, the harder Satan works against him, he will actually fall into place with him. Why do I say that? Because we are living it today just as much as Judas lived it then. Judas and disciples had to deal with this interlacing of the plan of God and the evil of men and the evil of Satan. And and somehow they, trying to destroy Jesus, end up making it happen just the way Jesus said. Now, why does it matter to us today? Because we are entering a period of time when if you scratch your head and think about it and say, you know, if Satan understood anything out of the Bible, all he'd have to do is try to thwart things happening the way God said they would. And make God a liar. But he can't. Satan himself is going to try to rule this world. He's going to try to thwart the work of Jesus Christ. He's going to deceive the world. He's going to lead them into uh, battle against God himself. He's going to engage himself and his demon hordes in all of this activity, just the way the Bible described. And yet, though the Bible describes it perfectly, God isn't the agent of it. Satan himself would be. You and I are sitting there saying, you know, What if Satan and Judas didn't ally themselves and go to the chief priests? What ifs, this is just a little clue for you, what ifs are stupid? Okay? You know why? 
because God has perfect foreknowledge. And if that what if was in his foreknowledge, there would have been another if to take its place. Because the working and power of God is trustworthy. Satan is doing his darndest right now. Okay? Right? You noticed? This has been a, another banner week for our country. Especially for you military guys, and I'm sorry. It's been a banner week, hasn't it? We have a lot of hand rings in the conservative Christian movement. But you know what? You don't need to be worried. It's going to happen just the way God said. None of this surprises Him. None of this is going to override His Word. He can use it to accomplish His purposes and yet not be the cause of it and certainly not be engaged in it. This is the lesson we learn from Judas Iscariot. Will he be condemned? Oh, yes. Is, is horrible things that happen to him? Yes. Was a horrible thing that he's going to do here in a little while? Yes. But in the midst of all of this activity, something is going to happen that is unthinkable. The leaders of Israel are going to do incredible illegal things that they didn't really even want to do because it was the feast days. They're going to be forced to do it because an opportunity is provided to them by one Judas Iscariot. All to fulfill God's timetable. This statement by Jesus is a very powerful one. To give us a glimpse into how the world works around us. So we don't fret, we don't worry, we don't go out in despair. You don't have to. You don't face the future going, oh my, what's it going to be like? It's going to be like just what Jesus, God said it would be like. And because that happened just the way God determined, what's in front of us is going to happen just the way God determined, guess what? Eternity is going to happen just the way God said whether it's going to be in His presence for those who trust in Jesus Christ or in eternal judgment in the lake of fire if you rejected Him. That's just as sure as the fact that Jesus is going to die during Passover. The big Passover, not the little one. 